We are revisiting uh, the churches, the seven churches of Revelation, because uh, Allison and I had the opportunity to physically visit the, the sites uh, not long ago. So I thought I'd take some time to revisit them because we learned so much being there and uh, doing a lot more research that hopefully we can supplement what we've already said. Uh, Revelation, if you turn to Revelation, the third chapter, please. And we, last time on the 1st of April, uh, looked at the church in Sardis, and we have more to say about that, more to look at, more spiritual lessons from it. So uh, let's first uh, read the portion of Revelation that has to do with the church of Sardis, which is Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Just very briefly to remind you a little bit about Sardis. Uh, Again, as all the churches are, this is in modern-day Turkey, what was known as Asia Minor. Sardis was a very large city. It was on a hill called Necropolis um, in, in Greek, a hill uh, 1,500 feet high, uh, a city full of robbers and murderers. Uh, William Ramsey, the uh, Christian archaeologist, called Sardis the city of death, more like a robber's stronghold than, a boat, than an abode of civilized men. About 120,000 people. Told you how they figured the size of towns. Uh, how would you know what the population was of a town 2,000 years ago? You look at the theater, and they have a multiplier for the theater of uh, how many seats are in the theater, and they multiply that by, I don't, I've forgotten now, but the archaeologists have like five or something and come up with a rough idea of what the population of the city was. So 120,000 people is a lot of people. Uh, even today, but particularly back then. Uh, it was on the Silk Road, a uh, famous silk route, that, a silk road, a trading route that went all the way to China. Uh, Sardis had a lot of wool production. Uh, the first coinage uh, was done in Sardis. We had the opportunity to see some of those in a museum, uh, the very first coins that were ever made to, that we know of in the, in the world. Um, had a large Jewish population. Uh, the synagogue, if you go there today, you can see the synagogue, and it's very well uh, restored and preserved. Now, it's not a building you enter. It's, there's no roof, and a lot of the walls are missing, but you can still see a lot of the inscriptions and the uh, beautiful mosaics on the floor uh, are still intact, largely. 
so you can visit all that today. It's blessed enough to be able to do. Uh, Sardis also is uh, not only a, had a synagogue, but it had uh, a center for the worship of the goddess Sibylle. And Sibylle uh, was, uh, uh, again, a, a female deity, uh, essentially, you know, the same virtually as Diana, Artemis. Uh, um, it's uh, female deities going all the way back based on, I believe, on Semiramis uh, from ancient Babylon. Uh, Sibylle was called the mother of the gods, if you recall. The savior who hears our prayers was one of her titles. Um, and we talked about how she has all these parallels uh, with the Virgin Mary, uh, with uh, the, at least how the uh, uh, Romans regard the Virgin Mary today, the Roman Catholics regard Virgin Mary, a lot of parallels. In fact, our guide pointed that out, as I said, when we were, when we were there. He was just, we were, else I were blown away when he uh, said virtually the same thing that you can read in uh, 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 Hislop's The Two Babylons. Uh, the, guy who had never heard, the guy had never heard of that book, by the way, but he said the same thing. He said, well, this is how you, this is where the worship of the Virgin Mary, uh, this idea of veneration of her came from. Um, we said that Sardis, uh, again, is notorious for a criminal element, a very dangerous city. Uh, so you can imagine the Christians trying to survive in a place like this. It'd be like living, if you can think of the worst neighborhood you can imagine, we're trying to live in that neighborhood and, and be a Christian and, and you know, be, uh, have outreach to your neighbors. Uh, probably very much like, uh, um, oh, if you can think of uh, um, Lot, for example. Uh, in Sodom, you know, neighbors banging on the door, wanting to have you know, homosexual relationships with, with your visitors. Uh, so, very difficult for them. In fact, uh, Sardian was used as a as a slang, a put down for homosexual, even if a person wasn't from Sardis. You, you know, they're called a Sardian, like we'd call somebody a I don't know, faggot or something today. Um, also, it was said to be the first city that was converted by the preaching of John, at least not the whole city, but the people uh, in it that became Christians. Uh, but it, it is a dead church, obviously, from what the Lord was saying. And, our, and we made the application last time that it could be a letter written to many, if not most, Protestant churches today, uh, or other denominations as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a dead church. The people were playing church. And we took, took away some ideas from that, that it's entirely possible for us to be in a church that has all sorts of wonderful things that appeal to us, all the trimmings of the modern evangelical church, and yet it could be a dead church because it is centered on what can we do to get the most people? You know, how do we get the most people so the visitors will come and they'll stay and they, you know, we'll get more money in the till and, and we'll have a big church and uh, uh, what can we do? So how can we structure the worship service to appeal to everybody? And uh, there's, there's uh, as Jim has talked about in his former church, uh, they actually structure the service to the music as lifts you up, and then a certain time it'll bring you down again, and then you get more serious, and then you know it's all orchestrated to play on your emotions. Uh, well, that's a sign of a dead church. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not at work. It's uh, man-centered uh, manipulation. Uh, so the charge against the church in Sardis is hypocrisy, and that is hypocritical to do that. Uh, from the outward appearance, it appears to be a living church, but the Lord says, you are dead. You are dead. Let's see where we are. Today, 
we, we ended actually with verse 1. That's as far as we got the last time, as I recall. So let's uh, continue uh, with verse 2 in Revelation chapter 3. Lord Jesus Christ says to the church at Sardis, to the angel of the church, which angel, of course, is the pastor of the church, therefore he is to, uh, uh, this is to, to the whole church, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that thou that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. So there are a few things that remain that need to be strengthened, but they're ready to die too. They're ready to go off, go, you know, go out the window. In, in other words, I found a few doctrines and practices that do remain biblical in your church. But they're about to die just as your other doctrine and practices are already ignored. They're dead. Remember, false doctrine produces false works. If you have the wrong doctrine, the wrong idea of what the Bible says, you're going to worship in the wrong way. One follows the other. Uh, There are many churches, even in Reformed churches, that are Reformed in their doctrine, more or less, but their worship is not Reformed. They don't don't take their worship out of their doctrine. Uh, They try to have the split between, but you can't split them up. Biblical doctrine produces living works. False doctrine produces rotten works. And living works are blessed by God and are perfected by him. Uh, So he's saying focus on what doctrines and what practices you have left that are faithful to scriptures. Strengthen them. Build on them. Do not any longer build your church upon false doctrines and practices that you have been indulging in. Um... And he says, remember, in verse 3, therefore how thy hast, thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He's, Jesus is saying, remember what you've heard, what, you, what you've received, and hold fast and repent. Reminds me of the verse in Jeremiah 6.16, okay, stay to the old paths. The sure paths, you know, don't don't get persuaded by some new idea. Well, new new, new understanding of the Bible. Uh, no, stay with the old paths. Uh, the old paths have been faithful, and, and Jesus is saying again: Remember what you received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Uh, same command that he gave to the church in Ephesus. The church had lost their first love which is the fire that they had for the Lord at the beginning, which sounds a lot like the church at Sardis. Not only remember what you've received and heard, but uh, um, hold fast. Hold fast. Remember with what joy and enthusiasm you received the gospel. Now you can think back in your own life. Maybe there was a time, not everybody, but maybe there was a time when you really weren't a believer. I was talking to our friend Brian Murphy. I had lunch with him the other day. And he was saying that uh, for a long time, you know, he said, I, I wasn't a believer. He said, my wife was. And I thought that was fine, but I didn't go to church. And uh, he said, just one day, the scales fell from my eyes. And he said, I realized what, what the Bible was saying. And he said, it was just, just happened within a, a very short time. So, People like that have joy and enthusiasm. They receive the gospel. They have a drive to share it with their loved ones. 
I was impressed with, I was reading a little short biography of Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller, uh, who's a militant atheist, by the way. Uh, but I was struck by the fact that he said, after the show one day, somebody came up to him and gave him a Gideon's Bible. And unlike a lot of atheists, you know, who would be like offended and insulted, him, he says, he said, I appreciated it. It's because he was showing me that he cared enough about me uh, to, to do that. And uh, so there's a, uh, there is that drive to share it with loved ones and then occasionally run across an unbeliever who understands what you want to do. I'm sure if, if a sincere you know, Buddhist or a Muslim came to you, let's say a Muslim came to you with the Quran and said, here, you, know, you really need, need this, you know, it will really change you and help you, I would hope most of us would, would understand and not be angry, uh, but thank you. And, of course, with soft word, you may... Uh, the Lord may use that to, to convert that person. Um, but as an aside, I thought that was very impressive that Pendulette would, would uh, do that. Of course, that's of the Lord as well. He doesn't know that. Uh, but anyway, hold fast. Uh, why? Because it's your life you have to cling to. This is the word of life. Feed on the word so it's near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. Romans 10.8. The fruit of your lips giving thanks to his name. Hebrews 13. And repent and turn to God. If therefore... It's going on in Revelation 3. Shall not watch, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. That's a very solemn warning, isn't it? Just think about that. What does a thief do? He doesn't uh, call you up and say, I'm going to rob your house tonight. Will you be home about 8? If you'll be out, I'll come and rob your house. No. He says he comes without warning. Comes in the middle of the night when you least expect it. So it's a solemn warning to us. If we don't watch, first, what do we have to watch for? We have to watch for our own lives. Then for our family's lives. Because if we don't guard our own life, how can we guard our family? So then we have to watch out for our Christian brethren. Then we bring the gospel to the world. Then Christ will come to us in judgment if we don't do that. Because we're proven we're none of his. We don't care for our own heart. We don't care for our hearts of our families, their eternal welfare, for our Christian brethren, for the world. That proves we're none of his. And he says his coming will be swift and unexpected to anyone who's spiritually dead, especially those in Sardis, like Sardis, or like today, who think they are alive, but they are dead. They're walking, the walking dead the walking dead. Their spiritual slumber will make them think they're everything is fine. They're asleep spiritually. They're numb. But they think everything is fine. You know, maybe they'll go, they go to church. Everything is fine. They go to Bible studies, whatever it may be. Or, well, I'm, you know, I'm saved because my parents were saved. They went to church every day, you know, every Sunday of their life. So I must be saved as well. well it doesn't work that way. Matthew 7.21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of people in hell today who never expected to be there. The Sardis Church ignored the Lord's warning. 
Sardis actually was completely destroyed by an earthquake. There's a huge earthquake, which we learned about when we were there. Actually, it's in an area where we have a lot of earthquakes, uh, but they're completely destroyed by an earthquake. Uh, you can go to the sites of these seven churches where he says, Jesus said, if you don't repent, and he says this to a lot of the churches, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick, or words of that effect. The candlestick is, is represents a symbol of the church. So if you don't, if you guys don't repent, you're going to be gone. I will take that church away. Well, you can go to every one of those sites today, and what do you see? You see basically rubble. There's no church in any of these places. Uh, it's gone. No evidence of the, the. It's even hard to find. I mean, we never we never went to a building in the, in, or a ruin, and, and we're told, well, this is where the church met. We don't even know. They don't even know. We assume they met in some of the synagogues and all that, but they may have met in other places as well. Nobody really knows. I mean, totally wiped out. Verse 4, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's the close of the, of the letter to Sardis. So we need to be unspotted. As Jude 23 says, we should have a garment unspotted by sin robes of righteousness. Um, Now, we ought to know what that means. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. That that creates a doctrinal question. If we're elect, how can we be blotted out of the book of life? Right? Uh, Well, in, in that time... Uh, there was a register of people who lived in the state or in the community. Uh, we have that today. You know, we have uh, tax rolls. They know who uh, lives there. Uh, but if, a, if someone committed a crime against the state or if they die, the name is erased, just like today. You know, if, if, if you own the house and you die uh, or, or sell it and move out of the community, your name erased from the rolls and somebody else just put on. So they always kept the, the register accurate. Uh, when you died, you were taken off the roll, you committed a crime, your name was taken off the roll. Uh, but he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name uh, before my father and before his angels. So does that mean that God might embrace your name from the book of life? Well, first of all, it says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. First says, he that overcometh, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, there is a verse in Exodus that some people have said, well, see, Exodus 32:33, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. So 
In Exodus 32, God says, I will blot you out of my book. And Revelation says, I won't erase you out of my book. Okay. Uh, Exodus 32, 33, just so you know, doesn't say the book of life. It says, it's talking about an untimely death. I'll remove them from the world. I'll take them out of the book of those who are alive. It's not the book of the redeemed. Um, We can read, let's turn to Romans 8 to, to help us understand this possible problem. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he, also, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, there's no contradiction here. Jesus... He's saying, I will not blot out his name. I I will not blot out my people's name out of the book of life. That's the promise. But I will confess his name. He that overcometh proves that he is among the elect. God will not, Jesus will not blot out his name out of the book of life. It's a promise that we we are there. We are in the book of life. As dead as this church is, still our Lord is merciful and gracious to it. The mercy and patience of the Lord we should be grateful for because we'd be long gone, you know, long ago extinguished if he didn't have, have uh, virtually... Um, well, Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises; some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. If you ever wonder why why hasn't the Lord returned? You know, so much evil in the world. Why didn't He just come back and get rid of it? Uh, because they, they they have not filled up their iniquity yet. Uh, but it says here, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. People say, well, His Bible says, well, where is He? Come back. Well, 
He's not, he's not um, ignoring us. He hasn't forgotten that he's coming back. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, there are few people even in Sardis, of all places, that have remained faithful and true, kept themselves unspotted from the world. James 1.27, they've resisted temptation uh, to be unspotted from the world, are overcoming. Does that mean they're perfect? No, of course not. There's nobody that's perfect. There's nobody who is unspotted completely from all the influences of the world. Uh, But what that means is their outward life is an expression of what they are inwardly. Okay. They're not. They're not out sleeping with their neighbors, or uh, you know, lying to people and stealing. And they're not outwardly. Do, do they have inward sin? Of course they do. Uh, do they sin sometimes? Of course they do. Uh, but they are, uh, as far as the world is concerned, uh, they are an example of godliness. They are unspotted, and they are unspotted from the world, as James one twenty seven says. Uh, they keep themselves from the from uh, being uh, uh, contaminated by the world. Uh, See, even among the wickedest of the wicked, and you couldn't find a more wicked place than Sardis, the Lord always preserves a remnant for himself. Even there, there there were believers. That's what's so wonderful when you travel. You know, you can be in a town where you know nobody at all, and you can find it, uh, find a church, hopefully, and you walk in and you have brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter where you are, in the, at least in the United States and in many other countries. Uh, but it's just, I've always thought that's remarkable, that you can, you can walk in and you can, you can uh, uh, have instant fellowship with people you've never seen before and possibly will never see again. And they know that as well. What is the remnant, though? What is this remnant that I'm talking about, even in the most wicked place? Well, the remnant is defined for us, among other places, in Revelation 12:17. It is those who keep the commandments of God who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, faithful Christians. And he says about them at the end of verse 4, going back to uh, Revelation 3, Uh, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says, you're worthy. Uh, Our culture, we think of, I'm not worthy. But he says, you are worthy, because they refused to defile their garments while under great pressures to do so. They refused to engage in the sin that was all around them. So Christ will take their garments that are relatively unspotted and give them divinely pure garments. Uh, white robes standing for holiness and purity. He says, since you have a, a measure of holiness and purity now, I'm going to give you perfect holiness and perfect purity uh, in the future. Um, the robes of Christ, the garments of absolute purity and holiness. Uh, you've kept your garments as pure as best you can. You could. Someday I'm going to give you perfectly pure garments. I'm going to make you holy forever. Some of you are worthy. Uh, 
talk about a remnant. Again, Romans 11 says, Even so, then at this present time or also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We're the remnant here. We're part of the remnant in this community, in this area. There's always a remnant of the people of God. Um, and he talks about the book of life again, as I mentioned. I will not blot out your name out of the book of life. Now, remember, there's no literal book in heaven. Scripture talks about a book, um, but heaven is a spiritual place. So there's no literal book in heaven. God doesn't need to write down your name in a book to remember that you're saved. That's a symbol, of course. Uh, It's a word picture we can understand. In the metaphorical book of life, God has written the names of all his elect people. Now, there are those whose names were not, have not been written in the book of life. That book is not being still authored, by the way. It was authored before the foundation of the world. Uh, but those whose names are not written in the book of life are those whom the Lord does not choose to save. And we all deserve hell. We all deserve not being saved. We've all gone our own way. Uh, we've sinned knowing we were doing wrong. And the wages of sin is death, of course, Romans 6.23. And those will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of human history as it says in Revelation 20. Um, In Ephesians, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 3, after the salutation. Part of the salutation, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having, going on, having predestinated us, there's that terrible word that everybody hates, right? It's right in the Bible. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And it goes on. First chapter of Ephesians is great to talk to anyone who doesn't believe in such a thing as predestination or election. Some ask, you know, of course, why did God elect some to eternal life and not others, leaving them to the just punishment of their sins as we deserve? Well, I just read you the answer. If anybody ever asked you, well, why would God do such a thing? Well, go to the first chapter of Ephesians. There's the answer. The end of verse 5. Because of the good pleasure, or according to, the good pleasure of his will. He's the creator, like a potter who makes a pot, he chooses what to do with his creation, his creatures. He did it, the only answer is he did it because he wanted to do it. And those who go farther and question him are like pots questioning the potter as, why did you make me this way? So Christ says he will confess, that is affirm, he'll witness to, the, to your status as the elect before the Father and before his angels. So the close of the letter to the church of Sardis, but it's a, it's a letter to the Sardian churches of today. Lots of people are members of Sardian churches. 
Worship is the most important thing we do, and the church at Sardis is the very picture of many churches, sadly. So, not so much for those of you here at Reformation Church in Bernie, Texas, but here are some questions for those who may be considering a church or in a church and they're not really sure of whether it's a Sardian church or a partially Sardian church or not. So let me give you a few. Or if you're traveling, you want to visit a church or move and you want to go check out churches, or you have somebody asks you, if a relative somewhere that doesn't live around here, a friend, you know, how do I find a good church? Well, here's some questions to ask the pastor and the elders. First question, are there any doctrines taught in the Bible that should not be taught and preached? Such as, oh, some that are too advanced uh, for people, uh, especially uh, new Christians, those weak in their faith, doctrines that might cause them to leave the church. I I think I've told you I was in a Reformed church where I was told, well, we don't preach about election um, and predestination. Those are too deep and too difficult, raise too many questions. We, uh, you know, we'll just later work with people about that, but we don't preach that. In other words, they don't preach the whole counsel of God, which is what we're called to do. Uh, second question, well, do you believe in election, that are some are ordained by God to, uh, to eternal life? Should that be taught and preached publicly? Well, a lot of churches say, no, no, that sounds too prejudiced you know, to say that some people are elect and some people aren't. Uh, or should it be taught privately? Third question, what about, again, the doctrine of reprobation, that God has ordained some for damnation? Uh, people say, well, he passed them by. Yes, he passed them by. What happens when they get passed by? They go to hell and they go to the lake of fire. Isn't that ordaining them to damnation? <laughs> it's just a nice way of saying that is what it is. Uh, but that's reprobation. Uh, do you believe that? Does this church preach and teach that? Um, first question that Jim Evans ever asked me on the phone when he was when he was checking us out, and I, I never talked to Jim before, and first question he had is, do you believe in reprobation? Not always asked that. Well, I was glad to hear it. Fourth question, should sin be preached on to the extent that people are made conscious of or saddened and feel guilt about their own sins? Some, believe it or not, some churches do not preach about sin. Uh, Robert Schuller said he doesn't preach about sin. Um, and I'm sure there are many others. Um, today because people don't want to hear about sin they want to hear about the good stuff you know what Jesus can do for me uh, I was reading Calvin the other night and he said uh, he said that, uh, there are a lot of people would uh, uh, would like to make Jesus uh, their private chef so he could cook them fine meals <laughs> in other words you know Jesus is there to serve you he's there to give you good stuff you know that's the kind of sermons you're going to hear people want to hear that well, so we don't preach about sin. Of course, that's just helping people go to hell. Fifth question, should the church determine what worship styles it prefers or offer different worship styles for different service times? Well, we have no right to do that. There's only one worship style, as we've said. It's, in, it's dictated by the scriptures. Um, I've talked about that so many times, I'm not going to revisit that. Uh, sixth question, think about this. Is the primary purpose of worship to save the lost? That the primary purpose of worship is to save the lost? 
I'll be talking about that in a moment. Seventh question, should the worship service be user-friendly or seeker-sensitive, meaning that the service is constructed to make people want to come back, make people enjoy themselves so much they want to come back? And last question, what forms of seeker-sensitive worship are acceptable? If you answer yes to the previous question. What forms are acceptable? What limits are there, or are there any limits? See, the problem is once you get away from the Bible's instructions, hey, the sky's the limit, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to have choirs, then you can have solos. Uh, if you're going to have, uh, you're going to have uh, music written by uh, uh, men, then you can have almost anything. You know, you can say, well, this is sinful, we're not going to have it, and some people might disagree. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who say, well, I don't like praise music in church. I want the old hymns. What argument have you got? What argument have you got if you accept man-made songs to say, I prefer hymns to praise songs? Somebody else might say, well, I prefer praise songs to hymns. So where's the argument? It's a personal judgment, that's all. But when you believe that you should sing songs in worship that God gave us, then that argument goes out the window. Uh, but again, it's opening the door um, to anything. Dramas. Ever been to a church where they have dramas? I do have. Uh, where they have a, a stage play during the worship service. Uh, where uh, liturgical dance, you know, interpreting God's word by jumping around the stage. Um, sorry to you dancers, but that's, you know, dance is fine, but not, uh, it's not ordained in the, in the worship service in the New Testament. Uh, calliopes. What's wrong with having a calliope in church? Uh, I've told you about the Episcopal priest who uh, dresses as a clown and has, has does a clown act as part of the service. Um, so the answers you're going to get if your church is a living church is no, we preach the whole counsel of God. All of the truth should be preached, including election and reprobation. Preaching about sin should, if it's spirit oriented, anointed rather, make people conscious of, saddened, and feel guilty. If you don't feel guilty, then what's no big deal about sin, right? No, church leaders have no business choosing a worship style because that belongs to the Lord, and He's made it clear in the Bible. Um, the primary worship of worship is it to save the lost? No. Should the lost be saved through the preaching of the word? Yes. But the primary purpose of worship is to worship God. <laughs> That's the primary purpose of worship, by definition, is to worship God and to glorify Him through the worship. The elect will be reached through the preaching of the word of God. Uh, through the administration of the sacraments. Uh, but his people will want to come back to worship him truly in spirit and in truth because the Holy Spirit will draw them, not because they like the music or because there's youth groups or whatever it is. The Holy Spirit will draw them. See, the church can't compete with the world for the attention of the worldly. You know, you can't compete with the Super Bowl in church. You know, it's just not going to, or, or the, you know, whatever people want to do. Uh, the, the church is always going to come in second, second class when it comes to TV or sports or Hollywood. Uh, worldly entertainment in churches attracts and produces worldly people. 
including those who claim the name of Christ. Dr. Kenneth Talbot said, president of West Whitfield Seminary, said, the focus of corporate worship should be on what God has done and is doing rather than what we have done or are doing. Worship, quote, is God-centered, but, quote, celebration is man-centered. So, in conclusion, if your church... And again, I'm speaking to those who can hear me outside of Reformation Church, although we obviously we have our sins in our service and we uh, repent of those and await for further instructions. If your church looks like what I've pictured, no matter how stimulating the music or the service may be or how funny the pastor may be or how nice the people may be, it may be a dead church. It's a Sardian church. And the Lord says to his people, who are in dead churches in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's go to him in prayer. Indeed, Father, we pray that... uh, we pray for all those uh, who, all those elect who are living in spiritual wastelands, Father. We hear from them from time to time through our ministry on sermon audio, uh, through emails. Who are in? Uh, there's just no church around them that uh, is, is uh, anywhere close to being faithful to the Word of God. At least not close enough that they can feel that they can participate in the services, Father. So we particularly pray for them. Uh, that, uh, Lord, that I might, thou might uh, minister to them and help them, Father, and uh, um, give them, uh, even if it's worship in their home, uh, give them uh, the guidance and uh, uh, awareness that uh, thou art with them in spirit and in truth, Father, and uh, provide them a, a way out of that spiritual wasteland one, one way or the other uh, through, thy, through thy grace, Father. And we... Uh, 